Again, we want to welcome everybody back here tonight. Uh, we also want to say that we're truly thankful for each and every, every one of you for being here and your desire to be here tonight, to hear another message from God's Word, and to have that godly fellowship with our Christian family here tonight. Today, Bud has a special spot in human history. Uh, and that it is 9-11, which is the anniversary of that tragedy which occurred with the attack on the World Trade Center towers. And this date, it's one of those dates which will be born, burned into the memories of all Americans. On a positive note, today is also National Grandparents Day. If you're a grandparent, you know that every day is Grandparents Day when it comes to our grandkids. They truly are a blessing and a gift from God. And those kiddos, they, they, give, our, they give life a special meaning. Because grandkids are just special. They brighten our lives and warm our hearts. So we want to give special thanks to God for all those grandkids in our lives. So as most of you know, it seems that if you see me up here, that uh, means our young people are attending Tri-State, and that Doug is spending time with them tonight. So you're stuck with me tonight. Uh, on that note, we did get our wires crossed a little bit this morning, but we figured it out. Uh, kind of fell through the cracks who was gonna be up here tonight. But I told Doug it wasn't any problem and that, you know, definitely had a lesson worked up. Because it's important that we, we focus on our youth to ensure that they grow up and grow also in their faith. It's because without our youth, then our future would be grim. Because our youth, our youth are our future. So, it is important that Doug and everybody that, gets a, that can gets time to spend, uh, spend time with you, our youth developing their faith every chance that we can. So keep in mind, I've only had a few hours to put, put this together, so if I stumble or if I get off subject, especially I may start chasing rabbits, but we'll get through it. Uh, usually kind of rely heavily on, on my notes and usually have everything down to the smallest detail worked out ahead of time, but we're just gonna work off of more of an outline. So bear with me as we go through this. So tonight, I want us to look at the word ambition. I wanna ask two questions. First, why are we here tonight? Now, I think some might think that question's a little harsh, but I think it's important because it leads us to our second question. What is your ambition in life? What is your life's ambition? I don't think we can ask one without asking the other. And given our subject on ambition, I think both questions are very appropriate for, that, for our study tonight. And we think about amb the word ambition. 
Most people, they're going to think it has a worldly meaning, which will most people apply to it. Such as, what's your ambition concerning your job? What's your ambition concerning your career? Some might even be thinking about their ambition financially, how we support our family, or how we plan to retire as we grow older. Most would agree that this word ambition for most people carries a worldly meaning more than a spiritual one. But there's one biblical person that I think most would agree that come to mind when we think of our spiritual or godly ambition. That person, no doubt, is the Apostle Paul. I can't think of any better example of godly ambition than the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, I think his whole life is an example of godly ambition. If you would, go ahead and turn to uh, Romans chapter 15, which will be our focus for tonight. Romans chapter 15. While you're turning there, I want us to look at some facts about the Apostle Paul. Paul, originally known as Saul of Tarsus, was born in the city of Tarsus, probably somewhere around 5 to 10 AD, arguably some say 2, but approximately 5 or 10 years after the birth of Christ, after Jesus. Saul of Tarsus, he was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Tarsus located in modern-day Turkey, but he was raised in Jerusalem, in Judea, which is in Philippians 3, 5 through 6, and Acts 22, 3. Tarsus was a free city in the Roman province of Cilicia, and Saul's parents had become citizens of Rome. And thus, by birth, Saul also had Roman citizenship. And we record that in Acts 22, 28. He trained in the Torah, its biblical studies and law, and under the, it was under the most respected rabbi of the first century, Gamaliel. In Acts, we read that in Acts 5.34 and 22.3. Saul considered himself to be zealous for God and a Pharisee. Again, Acts 22.3 and 23.6. Now, for some reason, most people think that somehow the apostles, when we look, think of them, that they were sort of like uneducated or what we kind of think of hicks or slow-thinking people or something like that. I'm trying to say that kind of in a nice way. But they were far from that. Paul had one of the best educations available in that time period. Plus, the city of Tarsus at that time was considered a metropolis in that time period. It was a modern city for that time, had some of the best libraries, and was also considered a center of knowledge for that region. Tarsus also had very, a very important part in history. It was well known for its wealth, 
for its schools of learning, which, and Paul described it as no insignificant city in Acts 21:39. Now you might not have ever put everything together on that, but Tarsus has an important part in history with a meeting between Cleopatra and Mark Antony. And most of us have seen that movie, the old movie, Cleopatra. And it's been a few years back, I was watching it on uh, Turner Classic Movies. And it was late one night, while I was watching it, I had one of those, oh really, you know, type moments. I'd never put everything together. You see, Tarsus, it's the city where Cleopatra meets Mark Antony at Cleopatra, what's now known as Cleopatra's Gate. The story of Cleopatra and Tarsus was in 41 BC when the Roman statesman Mark Antony planned to use her as an ally during the invasion against the Parthian Empire. But Cleopatra arrives in a boat filled with flowers and covered in gold plates with silver oars and purple sails. She was dressed as Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Cleopatra made a huge impression on Anthony, Antony and who soon became, they became lovers. It's believed that Cleopatra entered the city through that city's port gate. Even to this day, that port gate, it still carries her name to commemorate that rather spectacular event in history. This event of Cleopatra meeting Mark Antony, it happened only a mere 50 years before the birth of Saul of Tarsus. I never put those two together, with that being the hometown of Paul. As I was watching the movie, I'd hit pause and go to Wikipedia and look it up and yeah, that's the same Tarsus where Paul was born a mere 50 years later. So Paul came from a major city of that time period and he also had one of the most advanced educations of the time. Although Saul was a tent maker by trade, he had become the Sanhedrin's prosecuting attorney. We find that in Acts 18.3. He was present at the execution by stoning of Christianity's first martyr, Stephen, and may have been one of those from Cilicia who argued with Stephen in the synagogue in Acts 6.9 or 7.58. After his involvement with Stephen's death, Saul set out to destroy the Messianic community, also known as the Way at that time, which is recorded in Acts 8.3 and 9.1-2. He relentless went throughout Jerusalem, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison on suspicion of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. It's recorded in Acts 8.3. Saul was not content to conduct his inquisition in Jerusalem alone. He sought to extradite believers from Damascus, which would have to cross two borders 
to be tried and sentenced in Jerusalem. And that's in Acts 9-2. Then in approximately 34-35 AD, Saul of Tarsus met his match on that faithful day on that road to Damascus. In the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, we read of that dramatic conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We often use the word dramatic when we talk of Saul's conversion. But in reality, I don't think dramatic even touches or do justice to the, to the whole account. Why? Because here we have one of the most studied persons of the old law. He would have known it frontwards and backwards. Saul of Tarsus knows by heart, by heart, all the prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. Saul of Tarsus has one of the highest possible educations for that time. He knows what scripture says. Yet Saul of Tarsus doesn't, re doesn't recognize that Jesus was the coming savior of the Jews the same one that they had been looking for and waiting for for hundreds of years. And now he's literally face to face with the Savior. Saul is presented with what can only be described as a, it's a major paradigm. Everything he thought he was doing in the name of the Lord turned out he was doing exactly the opposite. Saul has been wrong and he's been committing atrocities against God. On the other hand, everything Saul has dedicated his life to, looking for, has been revealed to him in a most dramatic way. He's just seen the glory of the Lord, but also he's just realized he's been persecuting God's people. The depression that Saul must have felt after coming to the realization of the sins he was committing against God and God's people. It must have been beyond comprehension. While at the same time, seeing that glory of God right in front of him. How can the Savior ever forgive him? Saul thought he was so right, but it turned out he was so wrong. We know that in Act, because of Acts chapter 9 that Saul was converted and now is immediately preaching Christ crucified. He's realized the hope that is in Christ Jesus. That hope that now saves us. Now that hope that the Apostle Paul has and which he consistently, constantly preaches about it's the same hope that drives his ambition in life. Literally, Paul's ambition in life at this point is to preach Christ and to be the example of the hope that every Christian has, the hope of eternal life in heaven. Which brings us to our text in Romans chapter 15. I'm gonna be reading from the English, English Standard Version because I think it more accurately, which it does from the Greek, more accurately translates this. I myself, starting in verse 14, 15, 14 through 21, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, 
filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in this priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So we see in verses 19 and 20, we read that Paul preached the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Lycrium. And if you look on one of the maps, it's probably in the back of your Bible, you'll see that it goes from Jerusalem at the bottom and all the way around the Mediterranean. It covers an extensive amount of ground. And in verse 20, he says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. That is such powerful words. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Paul, Paul has dedicated his whole life's ambition to preach the gospel wherever he can. You know, we read this constantly throughout Paul's writings that his ambition is to preach the gospel and to preach of that hope that is within us. That we have that hope of eternal life in heaven with Christ. That hope of being heirs to the throne. That hope of being children of God. Now we see this starting in, in the book of Romans in chapter 5. Now, the apostle Paul, he writes of this hope that we have in Jesus Christ to those who are in Rome. And he's going to explain this hope in the book of Romans and leads up to this in the first four chapters. So in chapter 5, he explains this faith that we can have in Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That part, we rejoice in this hope and glory of God. The peace we have with God 
that we can only have through Christ Jesus. Then carrying on in five, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. But we also glory in tribulations. That our tribulations cause us to trust God more. Paul explains that our tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance character. And that character produces hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. We see this also, James. He writes the same thing that we can count in all joy when we face trials. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, which says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience that the testing of your faith produces patience. One thing I think I've always needed is more patience. And I think as, we, as I've gotten older, I, I, I truly hope that I have gained that. But that we get this when we fall into various trials. All the trials in our life that it's testing our faith which produces patience. You know, it means that our struggles have a purpose to strengthen us. That's powerful. That is so powerful. You know, we don't despair when we face trials. We count it all joy. The world cannot recognize that. The world cannot make sense of that. That we, we shouldn't despair when we face trials. We should count it as joy. You see, God is our strength. God is our refuge. You know, David knew this. And he wrote it, and he wrote of it, excuse me, in the book of Psalms. Psalm 46, 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. God is our refuge and strength that we can rely on, that we can, we can take that to the bank. You know, Paul tells us we are to be rejoicing in hope. Romans 12, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12 say, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord 
rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Is that something we do? Here, they're rejoicing in hope because they are experiencing tribulation. We are to be patient. Don't stop. Tribulation brings hope. That tribulation in our lives brings strength. You know, Nehemiah said, joy is strength. You see, Paul, he tells us that God is hope. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace. God wants us to abound in hope. We all have trials. We all face issues. We all at some point experience tribulations in our life. And all of us experience stress. It's just a part of life. But consider all that the Apostle Paul went through. If anyone experienced trials, it had to be the Apostle Paul. But if anyone knew the hope of God, it was the Apostle Paul. And backing up to Romans chapter 7, we read, Paul struggled, but he knew, he knew God was right. Paul knew there was forgiveness. He knew God was right and that through God there was forgiveness. Chapter 7, verse 24, Paul asks, Who will save me? Romans 7, 24 and 25 says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then the good news. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation in God. Eight ones, Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. That should, that should just waken our hearts, fill us with hope. No matter our trials, it's all insignificant compared to the infinite glory in Christ Jesus.
You know, we read in Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children of God. Heirs to Christ. That's not in future tense. But we are. Let's think about that and let that soak in for a minute. We are children of God. And not a promise, but that we are heirs of Christ. Paul knew the hope that is in Christ Jesus. We are the children of God. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. You know, no matter how bad, no matter how dark, we know that all things are going to work toward good and they're going to work out together for those who love God. Again, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And God says if we love Him, we'll, we'll obey His commandments. How can the denominational world think or say that just simple a simple prayer without anything else we say that they tell them you say that you can go on with your life where's the repentance where's the obedience where is the love if we love God, we will obey Him and we will obey His commandments. We will obey His Word. Now, Romans 8, 31-32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the hope. That's the hope that's within us. Persecutions, trials, hard times you know the apostle Paul apostle Paul knew all about persecution because he lived it you know he lists all his trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 24 through 28 starting in verse 24 from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day, I mean a night and a day I've been in the deep. 
in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, and in the perils among false brethren. In weariness, I toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. Of all the things the Apostle Paul experienced, all the tribulations, all the trials, all the beatings, my deep concern day came upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. It wasn't for his own health, it wasn't for his own riches, it wasn't for his own ego, it wasn't to build himself up. He says, my, he had, my deep concern was for all the churches. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, God told Paul that no matter what, no matter what, I'm with you to delight in trials because God was with Paul. This is the same hope that we have within us. This is why we have delight even to death if you're in Christ, that means that we don't even fear death. Death can't hurt us if we're in Christ. This is the hope that we have within us if we are in Christ Jesus. Back to Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Through Christ, we are more than conquerors. And finally, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of this is able to separate us from that love of God that we have within us. I'm persuaded that none of, the, none of this is able to separate us from God. This tells us that if we are in Jesus Christ, if we are faithful, that nothing, not even Satan, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Take a minute and let that think about how powerful that statement is. That the power that's in us if we are in Christ Jesus. 
that it's not able to separate us from the love of God. It brings us back kind of full circle to those two questions I asked at the very beginning. Why are we here tonight? I hope and pray that it's because of that hope that we have within us for Christ Jesus. And that second question, what is your ambition in life? Is your ambition the same ambition that the Apostle Paul had? To teach others of Christ? To teach others of that hope we have within us as Christians? Uh, I know I've kind of bounced around a little bit between some ideas. But if you ask me to preach what I think is one of the most important issues facing you know, Christians today, then probably each and every time I'm going to come right back to this point and preach on that hope, that hope that we have, that each and every one of us have as Christians, that hope that we have inside us. And the need for us to spread that, the need for us to spread that exact example, that exact message, to be able to spread it to the world. We need to spread that message that that hope of eternal life in heaven and should be the ambition of every Christian. It should also be our ambition to spread that same message throughout the world. You know, it should not only be our ambition in life, But it should also be why we're here tonight. That's the most important message I can think of that needs to be preached. It's also the thing that it's always at the front of my mind. That if we live our lives as the example of hope in Christ. That if we live our lives as that shining example that shining light on a hill that everyone can see. Not every person can get up and preach a sermon. Not every person can do everything. We all have different talents. But there is one way that we can evangelize, and that's with our life that our life be that example and be that shining light on a hill. That shining light that everyone can see. That our ambition in life is to show the world of our hope. To show the world of that hope that's within us. To show the world that we have salvation through Christ Jesus, through obedience of the word.
that should be our, our ambition as Christians. Every chance we get, we always want to extend an opportunity, an opportunity to come for forgiveness, for prayers of the church. It's also make it available at any point, if anybody has made that decision to follow Christ, to put him on in baptism. We always want to make that available. And not, we've said it over and over, not just at the end of every sermon, but we want to make that available 24-7. Whether it's Doug, one of the elders, and just any member, you, you can call and we can make that decision, we can make that happen and get the prayers of the church. There's a lot of times we need that. And just knowing that that's always there, that that's always that helping hand is always available, that through fellowship with one another, that through the obedience of the word, through the obedience of God's commands, that we have salvation that we have that hope of eternal life in heaven. So if anybody has needs, the church, this time we want to offer that invitation as we stand and as we sing.